Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen. Folks, Halloween is now in the rear view, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about horror. In fact, it's all we're going to talk about. For the rest of the show, I am chatting with author Jonathan Jans for his soon-to-be-released book, The Dismembered, which is a great title. This is out on November 11th through our good friends at Cemetery Dance Publications. You've heard the name a bunch. Check their stuff out. They've got amazing titles. You'll want to see them all. And Jonathan, thank you for joining me. It is so cool to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Max. I'm really excited to talk to you tonight. Uh, it's going to be a blast. It is going to be so much fun, man. Why don't we begin by giving us a quick walkthrough as to the story behind the new book? Sure. Uh, I really have varied tastes in what I read and what I watch. And, you know, one show, I, I, I don't like, uh, I don't like economic, like, discrimination and stuff. So I don't want to make it sound like I am for everything about the show. But a show that my wife and I really enjoyed when it was on was Downton Abbey. Um, and again, I'm not for like, you know, whatever, like putting the servants down in the basement, all that stuff. We just really liked, we really liked the music. We really liked the acting and it was an intriguing story. And I've always really loved older books. I've always loved Dracula. I've always loved Frankenstein. I'm a huge fan of ghost stories like by M.R. James and Algernon Blackwood. And so I think that, you know, those two loves of things gone by, you know, the Downton Abbey is a, a modern show, but it's of a bygone era. And when you combine that with my love of like gothic literature and some of the classics of the genre, I think that those things kind of crash together to create the dismembered. Nice, nice. And and the story of this one is so cool. Set, uh, set in the spring of 1912, American writer Arthur Pierce is reeling from the wounds inflicted by a disastrous marriage. He plans to just kind of travel abroad, write a new book. And forget about the, you know, bad old days. But he uh, meets a young woman on a train to London named Sarah Coyle. And she has a story to share. Apparently her younger sister has been entranced by Count Richard Dunning, which is a great name. And <laughs> Arthur, and, and so Arthur agrees to help. No idea what, uh, what awaits him in the town of Alterbrook. Again, very cool name. Sarah's Ancestral Mansion. I always wanted one of those. I want Ancestral Mansion, damn it. Um, I love this story. I mean, like you said, definitely kind of a kind of like a harken back to the you know good old days. What was involved in, in just like world building this thing, though? Yeah, I, I think that's one cool thing about being a writer is really you uh, you have an excuse or a duty to kind of study everything. I have like books about the weirdest things, like about the mating habits of frogs and stuff. Um, not that I've used that yet, but I might one of these days. Never know when there could be a frog sex book. Um, you got to know about that kind of population. <laughs> that so, appeals to a whole uh, different like audience, though. I think. It, I think it would, but you know, maybe I can snag that demographic if we if we can if we can go there. Um, but I and if any of, you, any of you are listening, by the way, I'm I'm taking requests, so I'm more than happy to try that. Uh, that subgenre, but with um, with this one, it was really fun. I've always loved old buildings, so it was really fun to study architecture, and that's something that I had done before with other books to a degree. But I got to do more with this one, with Castle Magnus, and then uh, which is the home of Richard Dunning, and then Alterbrook, which is the ancestral home to which you alluded. And so I got to study architecture. Really, you need to know 
just about, even if you don't use it, you need to know wardrobe, you need to know hair, you need to know how things were lit, like how people ate, what kind of dining wear do they use? So I really got to take these, I don't know about deep dives, but these moderately deep dives into a lot of different topics, just to make sure that there was some authenticity. I think that's a fine line with research. I think that an author can sometimes, and honestly, a book I really love is The Terror by Dan Simmons, but I feel like at times he wants to show off how much he's studied. He wants to show how much he's learned. It's still like an incredible novel. It's a classic of the genre, but it, 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 like we go on and on about the canning habits of different companies of that era and why some of the cans ended up spoiling. And I don't know that we needed 52 pages of that. Um, again, amazing book, just my own personal opinion. So I try not to let the research overwhelm the uh, story, uh, but I do think obviously it's super important to get some of the details right. Because if you don't get them right, somebody will notice. Absolutely. Somebody. I, there was a Brian Keene novel called The Rising. And uh, that was the, the book that made Brian Keene famous. And Brian himself is a bit of a prepper like he's kind of a survivalist himself but this review i read it was like this treatise on how the dimensions of this bunker were wrong and why brian needed to be murdered because he'd gotten this wrong right it was like the worst sin imaginable um just an absolutely dissertation absolute dissertation on all the reasons why brian was evil for getting the dimensions of a bunker wrong so you definitely want to try to get him right I feel like it's a bit of a harsh review. I mean, maybe issue a correction or an apology in social media, but murder seems a bit much. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like there, there's there's you know, kind of like this whole range of possible responses. We just kind of jump to the worst one. Murder him. Yes. Brian King, yes. Brian King got something wrong. Murder him. That's right. I, Brian tends to elicit that response on occasion, um, and I don't know why. I just think uh, Brian is a is a is a character. He can be a bit of a rascal. Like when he's when his temper is roused, he's not one to back down. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But people do tend to maybe not to the murderous extreme, but they do tend to like kind of go there on occasion with him. At which point he he slaps them back down and everything is back to normal and it, it, right. <laughs> but it's it's kind of interesting how that happens with brian he seems so nice too because i've actually had the chance to meet the guy in person he was really really nice oh, that's awesome. and uh yeah so I, nice. I was so nervous because he's one of my favorite writers so i met him at this book convention and i'm like okay keep it cool it's brian keen dude internally i'm screaming so and i talked to um his i don't know sure if it was agent or just his person that he was with at the event, I said, you know, could, could I do a picture with a, with a, a Mr. Keene? He's like, absolutely. And Brian comes along and takes the picture. I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. He is so approachable. He is the nicest so guy. Nice, He's like yeah. a big brother to me. My mentor, my big brother, he's an amazing person. But I kind of was the same way the first time I met him. I just, you know, you read somebody, you're a fan, and then you don't know how to act. Yeah. You become really awkward. At least I become awkward. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Given all that, right on your webpage, you've got a review from Brian King calling you one of the best writers in modern horror to come along in the last decade. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Brian, he he was the first guy to believe in me. He was the first person outside of my family and my, you know, my wife and my kids and my mom and my grandparents and my aunt. Other than them, maybe my dogs, I'm not sure. But I just didn't really have any, I don't know, nobody, I mean, not that anybody necessarily knows me now, but nobody knew me back in 2012 
And he, at that time, chose one of my books as the best. He had a list of top ten, top 10 books he would always do. And um, it wasn't his top book of the year, but it was his top horror novel. Like the one through six were non-horror novels, but the top horror novel on the list was my book, The Sorrows, my debut novel. And that was number seven on the list, but the highest horror book. And so when he did that, it was like, I won't say it, it like put me on the map, but at least it made me feel more validated and, and valued and because I obviously value his opinion. So that was a really wonderful moment for me. Um, and he's just since that moment, he's stuck by me and really championed my work and done much more for me than maybe anybody else in the whole business. And you can just stop right there because I think that like getting that kind of praise, you can just you you, you, can, you can just retire. You'd be like, hey, Jonathan, you going to do another <laughs> book? Nope. Just see, just see the comment from uh, Brian. I did think about that. I did consider just hanging up the MacBook right then, and uh, it was it was so lovely. It was so wonderful. It's still wonderful just to, to talk about. Yeah. You know, going back to when you published The Sorrows, as you mentioned, uh, 2012, um, how would you say you've sort of come along as a writer? Because you've, you've done so many more books since then. Yeah, I, I really feel like um, both my improvement and my career trajectory have both been very gradual, but gradually tending in the right direction. Um, it, there wasn't some moment where I felt like, oh my gosh, I've arrived as a writer and all the books before this demarcation point are terrible and everything I write from now on is going to be brilliant. Um, but I do feel like I, I've gotten better uh, with each year. And hopefully with each book, I also feel like with whatever notoriety or whatever readership I have, I mean, that's that's grown as well over the last decade. And again, it's nothing meteoric about it. It's not like I've hit the New York Times bestseller list or anything like that, but um, it's definitely trended in the right direction in a very gradual, I won't say glacial, but, but a gradual way. At this point, do you feel like you have arrived? No, not at all. I, honestly, and I, I don't feel like I ever will uh, feel that I have arrived. No matter what I accomplish, I will be. And here's the thing. It's like, I don't know. It's There are positives about this, but there are negatives as well. Like I can do like this conversation we're having. There will be many things that will go right. And there already have been things. It's been fun. There haven't been these horrible misstatements by me. I haven't stuttered too many times. Um, but I, I'm sure that there will be at least one or two things that I will wish I would have phrased differently or answered differently. And I'll be replaying those one or two things all night tonight as I try to sleep. And that's how I am as a writer also. So I could like win all kinds of awards. I could have movies made for my work and hit all these bestseller lists, but I will still fixate on that one really bad thing that happened. Um, and, and the, the, the positive of that is I'll never get arrogant. I'll never have to be like knocked back down to earth because I'm already there. <laughs> um, but the, you know, the negative of that is that it results in a lot of insomnia, which isn't, which isn't fun. Man, I feel like we're gonna like put you on the uh, on the uh, the couch right now and like talk about your family and talk about your past. <laughs> that actually might be beneficial, right? Why <laughs> maybe would we you could get into? The yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, you know, why would you say you are that way? You know, why do you think you're that kind of person to kind of fixate on the mistakes you make? I just think that I don't know. It's like I've always felt. Cause I've made mistakes just like everybody else. We all make mistakes. We all make mistakes every day, 
but I've always just, um, I don't, I, I, I think it's something in my psyche. It's the way I'm wired. Um, I remember in elementary school, I was always afraid of hurting people's feelings. And if I did, I still, like, I still go back to like stupid conversations I had or things that I said that I am still angry about that I said. There was, there's this one moment, like this is a silly example, but this still like haunts me. In high school, I'll try to synopsize this as fast as I can. In high school, I played basketball and I had a good ending of a game during my senior year. I made a lot of free throws. We ended up winning the game. And this guy that I was a classmate with said something and it was there was hallway noise and stuff. He's like, man, I'm glad you were the one shooting free throws at the end. And, and I just didn't really hear what he said. And I'm like, yeah, no kidding. And then I like, and as I walked away, I was like, wait a minute. And the bell was about to ring. I'm like, that sound is that way. Is that what he said? And then I said that you sound like the most arrogant jerk in the world. And then like, ever since then, I, I go back to that moment. I'm like, you are that's, that's so egotistical sounding. What's wrong with you? How could you have said such a thing? And like little stupid moments like that. I, and, and sometimes of course, and that one was innocuous. That one wasn't really my doing anything malicious. Of course, I've said thoughtless things just like we all have. And those also caused me to go back. But I think I've just always been that way. My, my mom, after a uh, after the parent-teacher conference with my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Brookbank, she said that uh, I, there was a, she's like she's the one who called it. She didn't have it with all the parents. She called it because whenever I'd make an error, I would rip try to tear my hair out in clumps. Um, and I just like, you know, I, I couldn't deal with it. And I, I think I've just always been that way. Uh, I kind of wish I weren't, but I always have been. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's a breakthrough. I think, I'm a mess, know? man. I'm a mess. Well, how would you, well, okay. Then if that is the case, how would you say you've managed to keep writing going for so many years? Uh, I think that probably part of the reason why is because the last 10 years, um, I mean, my family is the most, I mean, they, they're the thing that I do everything for, but I also feel like my writing has, has been so therapeutic and has helped me so much with a lot of these issues. Like if I don't write, I feel this buildup of tension. And it's not just because I have this need to, to just blab. It's because there are things that build up that bother me. And often I don't even know what was bothering me until I go back and edit it months later. And I'm like, oh, wow, that was really on my mind. And so often like through my writing, um, I think of a book like The Siren and the Spectre, this ghost story that I wrote. Um, there were certain facets of myself as a younger person that I didn't like and that I always felt like I needed to atone for. Um, just silly things. I mean, not, not silly things at all, but like I um, like whatever you, you go out with a young woman and then you know, instead of being considerate and calling her back right away, you wait a couple of days to call her back, stuff like that. You know, just being a little bit emotionally reckless, a little bit emotionally um, insensitive, not being a horrible person, but not being the person you should be. So like that guilt that I have over the way that I maybe wasn't as sensitive as I should have been back in college, for instance, um, I worked that out with Siren and the Spectre. And it's not like it's gone now, but it's certainly I'm in a better place because of that. And I didn't even know that it was bothering me until well after I'd written that book. Did working on the on the uh, dismembered help you with any particular issue? 
That's a great question. What's funny about this, Max, is I don't often, sometimes I don't even know until the book is published. And um, that was the case with Siren. That was scares of care. This Brian, this this uh, this event, this charity event that Brian Keene partially runs. I was on a panel talking about it, and that, that's when I realized it, and I started crying. I sound like such a mess to your to your listeners. I'm so sorry, but um, I think with uh, the dismembered, as I, as I think about that story, okay. So here's one thing that I and I worked this out a little bit in Wolfland too. Uh, the this book Wolfland, which is a werewolf book, but um, there's you know there's certain behaviors you see around you that you don't necessarily participate in, but you don't also fight, and you know you should have fought or fought harder when you see injustice. Um, I remember when I was a junior high kid, teenager in the small town in which I lived, any young woman who did anything with any guy was just all of a sudden judged so harshly. And any guy that would brag about something that he would do with a young woman was lionized as a hero and a stud and all this stuff. And um, in The Dismembered, there's a character who, and of course, I'm guessing that in 1912, it would have been worse than even it was when I was growing up, right? This idea of, it's such a scandal, right? And in fact, Downton Abbey deals with that a little bit, right? I mean, I don't know if you've you've seen that show, but that's like the opening episode is largely about that, how they're trying to avoid scandal. And the only thing this woman has done is she's had, you know, relations with somebody outside of marriage, but it's so scandalous that the whole family has to try to cover it up. And so in The Dismembered, there's this woman, a really a character I really love named Lizzie, and she is basically a pariah and her entire family suffers just because she's had some, you know, some relationships and she's done nothing wrong. But in the eyes of these harshly judging people, she has. And so I feel like those prejudices that surrounded the small town where I grew up, I think that some of that is played out a little bit in that book and maybe even worked out because it's not, again, it's not like I was the one leading the charge to, to, you know, to, to, to ostracize anybody, but neither did I ever do what I could have to undo that kind of damage and cruelty. Wow. So it sounds like with the different books you've been, you've been able to kind of like delve into different parts of your psyche. Yeah, uh, I, I really think the more you, the more honest you are, and the more of yourself you reveal, I think the more honest the book is, and the more the book resonates. And I really think readers can sense that. Readers have a very keen notion, and, and probably not even conscious, but I think that they can sense the ring of truth in what you're writing. And it just—it's so wonderful when somebody connects with that. So there's obviously that positive to it. But I think, selfishly, I do think that the more you reveal of yourself and the more you work out on that page, I just feel like the the, the mentally and emotionally healthier you become. I like that. Do you ever put parts of yourself in the book, either in characters or scenes or just like certain parts of it? Hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I do. Um, I uh, in in this book called The Nightmare Girl. I uh, were it's set in my house. The house in which I'm sitting right now <clears throat> is the setting of that book. At least a lot of the book is set in the house. The same road name. The same. Um, the the guy was the same age that I was. The guy had a lot of the same attitudes I had. The wife had some of the same like attitudes and and uh, characteristics my wife had. Um, I had a child the same age as he was. So it, it's not like that with every book, 
Sometimes I'll write somebody that's more dissimilar to me, but I think that in every book, there's, there are definitely pieces of my life. Like Will Burgess in this book called Children of the Dark is basically me at age 15. Um, as far as his attitudes and all that stuff, his situation is slightly different, but like the person he is, is largely who I was at that age. Wow. How about uh, for this book? For this one? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think about that a little bit. Well, my, my wife and I have a really good relationship, so there's not the disastrous marriage part. And, um, I've never, she's my first marriage or whatever. So I haven't, uh, had to go through that. I do think the fact that he is a, obviously the author piece is a direct link to me. I do think that his, he's a little bit, I mean, he's not, he's not unintelligent, but he's a little slow to piece things together. And there'll be times where I feel like that. Again, I don't think I'm an unintelligent person, but there'll be times when I feel like I'm slow on the uptake. Like I should have figured something out a little earlier. Um, the, the, the women in the book sometimes are, are not only a step ahead of him, but two or three steps ahead of him. And sometimes I feel like that. Sometimes I feel like I can be a little dense or foggy. So I think that probably is there too. But I also think one, one aspect of him is he wants to do the right thing. He wants to help. And you know that's not always a good thing to want to fix things for people, um, but I find that with myself, like I tend to want to fix things, and sometimes that's good because it comes from a, a, a place of I think generosity of character, but it can be a bad thing because not everybody wants fixed and not everybody needs fixed, and sometimes it can probably come off as insulting or pushy or whatever, and you need to just back off and let people work out their own issues. Hmm. Okay. How about uh, Count Dunning? Who is he? Mm. What does he bring to the book? Yeah, I love that guy. I love that character. He's such a bastard, but I love the character so much. He's um, he's really an amalgam of, I mean, there's the, the piece of my imagination, like he comes partially from there. But I love like Christopher Lee in Hammer Horror. Um, and that, I tell you, it's so rewarding. So many early reviews unrelated to each other have mentioned wishing that they could bring Christopher Lee back to play Count Dunning. Because I think that would have been just perfect. Christopher Lee at age like 40 or so, 45, that would have been just exquisite had he been able to play Count Dunning. I love, I mentioned M.R. James earlier. There's a, uh, there's a short story called Count Magnus. Um, and that's where I got the title or the, the, the castle name, Castle Magnus. Um, and I'm pretty sure there's a Dunning somewhere in M.R. James's uh, bibliography. That might have been where I got Dunning. But it's like, and, and I love Dracula. I love, I love that character. I just love these, these really um, charismatic yet malevolent characters that can be seductive, but can also just be cold-blooded and murderous. I just, that combination is just really fast. I mean, there's a reason why all these years later, Dracula is one of the most read stories in history, right? And I don't think it's Jonathan Harker. I think it's that central figure of Dracula and, and the mystique around him. And, and, the, and of course, the setting plays a role in that too. Um, but I think that that's what people are most magnetically drawn to. How about Sarah Coyle? Because I'm guessing her character is a little more complex than just damsel in distress. Yes, she is. Uh, she is more complex than that. And I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away, but I feel like Sarah and um, Violet and Lizzie, those are the three main, uh, those are the three sisters in this story. 
And I feel like all three sisters are um, deeper than they at first are painted. And that's one of the things that's kind of tough to do because you, as a writer, you don't want people to, you know, those dreaded words, DNF, did not, did not finish. And I think that one thing that can make people DNF is like paper thin characterization, right? Two dimensional characters or stock characters. And so I never want to create characters like that of any kind. Um, but it's it was necessary for this novel for them all to slowly have their layers peeled back, all right, or sometimes suddenly. Um, but for them to be dimensional, I think that, that's obviously important with any story. But with this one specifically, their um, their dimensions and then the timing of those dimensions being a little bit later in the book, I thought that was really uh, important. And so for that one, it just became a matter of me trusting the reader, which is a big part of being a writer. You've got to trust the reader because readers are smart. And, you know, you just kind of hope that they sense kind of like you're talking about. You haven't, you know, I mean, you're sensing that there's more to Sarah than meets the eye. And so you, you kind of trust that the reader is going to kind of go along with you. It's, it's this covenant you make with them and they're just going to trust you a little bit. Um, but I think that trust is warranted in this story with those three sisters, especially. Ah, okay. I'm curious about Arthur's decision to help Sarah, you know, because it sounds like he wants nothing to do with anyone. He wants to just get away, you know, recover from the train wreck of his last marriage. Why does he say, <laughs> sure, I'll go, I'll go help you, stranger. I'm going to go help you save your sister from this count, whoever, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny. I just think that that, and I don't know that it's necessarily just uh, something that a, a man would feel. I think that there are a lot of people who really want to help. They really want to help. So it is hard. There's that. Um, I, you know, for instance, I, I'm, I'm a teacher and I have had people like, because I, like, obviously my expertise is, I, maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but I feel like my expertise is limited to a couple areas. I'm not great at everything. I'm not like a Renaissance man who can play the guitar and can build houses or whatever. But I've, I've had people who have come to me like, you know, students or parents of students who have come to me with problems that I'm completely ill-equipped to help with. Um, and then I've, you know, I'm, I'm like trying to help. It's like, I, you know, I've had people come to me with like housing issues. Like they're, they, they, they want to move to, I'm like, okay, all right, let's do this. Okay. So here's your issue. Okay. Here are the, here's the, here's our action plan. And so I feel like that part of Arthur is in me. I do think that, you know, there's this, there's a little bit of a tradition with that in fiction in um, that, 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 that person who longs to be the knight in shining armor um, in a, a wait until dark with Audrey Hepburn, uh, her husband, Sam, uh, the photographer, that's how they meet. And the irony there is, is that she doesn't need save. She's like this super independent person, but yet he wants to save her. He wants to help her. And, and that, I think causes tension in their relationship a little bit. So it's like, yeah, because as, as I've stated, that's that's not always a good urge. That's not always the right. I mean, I think it comes from a good place, but it's not always the right thing. So I do think there's a, a tradition, not only of people who are like that, but of characters who are like that. 
in fiction and in film. And so I think Arthur has a little bit of that uh, cinematic and literary lineage. I could probably think of some other examples in, in, in novels if I thought hard about it. But I think that that is something that you sometimes see. And maybe I just like connect with it because I feel the same way sometimes. Uh, you know, I want to ask a bit about teaching. Because I saw that yeah. in your bio, you teach um, high school film literature, creative writing, and English. Do you ever like really encourage the kids that you work with to take up writing, or is it more like now nah, they they, they got to like find their own path? Yeah, I think it's both of those things. <clears throat> I think it is. I'm adamant about their finding their own path. I'm adamant about their the, the the first three words I write on the board every semester in my creative writing classes are find your voice. And that's really what we're searching to do all semester long is for them to find their voice. Um, Cause I don't want them to write like me. I don't want, want them to write like their classmates anything like that. Um, but at the same time, I do want them to write and I do like strongly encourage them, not just for assignments. I've, I, this sounds so cheesy, but I believe it with all my heart. I feel like the moment you start and, and it goes, I think for any artistic endeavor, and you know, it can go for like whittling, it can go for dance, it can go for the visual arts. I think that the moment you begin to express something, you are emotionally healthier. I think that that's so important for people to express themselves. And writing obviously is the way that I do that. And I feel like any human can benefit from writing because of that. And so I really try, try to encourage these kids to not just write the stories for my class, but to continue on. I know they're not all, they're not all going to become novelists. I know that. But I do think that a lot of them will continue to write in some way, even if it's just a journal or whatever, write emails to their family members to be more... Uh, you know, more willing to express themselves that way. I want that to carry on through their lives because I think that'll make them happier. I think they'll make their relationships better. Um, I just think it's a positive thing. I think the more we bottle it up, I just think the more resentful we become, the angrier we become, the more emotionally isolated we become. And the moment we start sharing the way we feel, I think that that can be a really wonderful bit of um, mental health improvement and connectivity to other people. I agree with that a lot because I feel like, especially in this you know current time period, we're finally acknowledging that you know we have feelings and we need to express them. We can't keep with them, like you said, <laughs> like just trapped inside. I feel like that's like the previous generation, and there's a lot of reasons why that was a bad idea. Um, yes, and I do like this generation. We're encouraged that yeah, you know, if you gotta fall apart, fall apart. It's cool. Everyone needs to. You'll feel better after you do it. Uh, you said that so wonderfully. I completely agree. And that's, that's just the thing. It's like, there are, I mean, you know, you look at, I look at my mother's generation, my grandfather's generation. I love my grandma and grandpa. They're passed on now. And I love my mom. But there are aspects of their generations. They're so backwards. And I'm not saying that we're necessarily the enlightened ones because we have our own challenges and we have our own issues i'm sure and our kids you know our people who come after us will look back on us and shake their heads dubiously but i just the, what you're talking about there is so true that stoicism that that th this notion that the less you share the braver you are right or, or i think and again this this can go for i don't know there's a there's a, I, I see it from my own lens, just like anybody does. So I see it from a, a male perspective, but there's, and, and I know it's true of men of those generations for sure. Right. It's like tears are for wimps and, you know, and you're never supposed to share how you feel and all that stuff. But 
I don't want to limit it to that because uh, this is a silly source, but my um, daughter, my youngest daughter, she loves this country song um, by Miranda Lambert um, called Mama's Broken Heart, I think. And it, it basically is her mother chastising her, telling her to shut up and bear it and just to, you know, because we don't want people to talk. And I think that that, so I think that's that's a fairly universal mindset for everybody that everybody of those ages had to deal with and maybe still is programmed to to to, to acting uh, to to be acting that way. But it's so unhealthy. It's so terrible. It's so terrible to think that I should never talk about you know this that bothers me. I should never share because now oh my gosh I've reduced my my level of manhood because I've shed a tear and showed emotion. Or whatever it is. It's just so wrong-headed. You can't believe that anybody ever thought like that. But people do. They still do think like that. It's just madness. It's a ridiculous notion. And then I will be up front. I cry sometimes. When I'm excessively stressed out, when I go through times, I just fall apart. There. I said it. I'm not a man anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> you and me both. Um, I cry more than almost any guy I know. I'll cry um, because of like joy i'll cry because i'll miss my family members who have passed on i'll especially cry at like movies and tv i'm such a sucker like i'm really emotionally connected so you know like in season three of stranger things i think it was there's a, a moment when 11 is reading a letter from somebody who loves her and i've seen that episode in, in the finale probably three or four times now and i just sob every time i see it um, because it's so beautiful. It's just so wonderful. And I just love those emotions. And of course, they mirror our own emotions, right? They remind us of what we feel in our relationships. And I just, I love that about, I love being able to to cry. My kids don't like it quite as much. They get a little embarrassed. But I'm like, whatever, man. You know, that's, I, I, I tell them, I think you'd rather have a dad who shows emotion than one who never does, right? You'd rather have me tell you I love you way too often to the point of, you know, being nauseated than to never tell you how I feel. And if that, and if that embarrasses them, just wait till they get to high school. It's going to get so much worse. I've got, I've got two right now that are, I've got a junior <laughs> and a freshman. And, uh, and there, I tell you, they're, they're, they're pretty, I mean, yeah, they're, they're embarrassed by me a little bit. Um, but I, I don't think quite as much probably as the average teenager which is kind of amazing because I'm a teacher at their school. Um, so I think they're embarrassed, but not debilitatingly embarrassed, mm. moderately embarrassed. I see. All right. Let, uh, let us swing this one back to the writing. Cause I think we're talking about that today. I'm not really sure. It's turned into kind of like the, uh, the therapy hour, but anywho, um, <laughs> when it comes to creating your character's emotions, you know, their, their whole like psyches, how long does that take? Is, is that, is that like months and months of work? Yeah, I find I, I write like in a white heat. I write pretty quickly, which is which is strange because I can't type. So I hunt and peck really quickly. I write at least 3,000 words a day when I'm writing, like during the summer, um, and sometimes up to four. So I can write a novel in just about whatever that adds up to be, five or six weeks. Um, really about a month I can write a novel. But then it takes me uh, six months to edit it. So that takes me quite a bit to, to edit because my first drafts are garbage. But so much of the emotion that you're talking about is there in the first draft. It's just the execution is really sloppy. 
Um, so it's sloppily executed, but very sincere, I guess is what I'd say about my rough drafts. Ah. Horribly written, but 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 sincerely done with a lot of my heart and emotions in them. And then you spend the next like six months trying to make heads or tails out of it to try to you know, chisel away all those rough edges to sand it where it needs sanded. And then ultimately I get there, but it takes me a lot of editing, so much editing just because my first drafts are so rough. Ah, so for this book, I'm curious as to what got left on the cutting room floor. Hmm. Well, it's, it's a novella. So um, with regard to word count, probably not as much material as my novels, but still relatively speaking, a large percentage. So I think the first draft of this, the, the final draft that people are going to be reading, it's under 40,000. I think it's like 38,000, somewhere around there. So it's a novella. It's in long novella territory. But I think originally it was in the high 50s. And then I cut it way down or maybe mid 50s. So there was a good bit of material that was cut. Um, I think the stuff that I end up cutting is almost always from the beginning um, or the first half of a book. Just because the way I write is I let the story, I let the characters kind of take take the wheel and then they drive the story. I don't write with a, an outline of any kind. I just have the vaguest notion of where we might go. And so that means that in those early stages, I'm probably going to be spinning my wheels a little bit. Um, it might not get to the point quite as quickly as it should. And so then I really want to really like trim those first parts and tighten them so they can be as muscular as possible. And so we can get to those, get to the, the, the good stuff faster than we did in the initial draft. Ah, okay. All right. All right. So we are coming very close to release day. It's the big time. The books are on the shelves. Reviews will be coming in. How are you on those days? I am, you know, I've done, so this, this like last few, like last month or so, I've actually had, this will be the third book in a month that'll release. I had Marla, which is a limited edition through Earthling Press. I had uh, Blood Country, which is a sequel to The Raven from Flame Tree Press. And that was a wider, it was a wide release. And now I've got The Dismembered. And it's funny, like I have, I've had a little less anxiety, if you can believe that from the basket case that I've painted here, I've had a little less anxiety this round than I have with prior books, maybe because I've had three of them coming out. And I, my attention has been kind of divided three ways. Usually what happens before a book is I am convinced it will end my career. I'm convinced it's the worst thing I've ever written. I'm convinced that it'll be a disaster, that I will just be despised and loathed by every reader. I just, I'm convinced every time. But this time around, it's not been like that. So I don't know if that means that I'm maturing or if it just means that I had enough things to distract me uh, this time, that I didn't have time to stress out as much. That's a possibility. That's a possibility. It is. Um, it I is. want to ask about working with the different publishers because uh, you mentioned a, f a few uh, different names and, and, of course, this book being released through uh, Cemetery Dance. How did you come to work with these like different groups? That uh, is advice from Brian. Um, he always tells all – I mean, he's, he's a mentor to so many people, not just me. But one thing he'll say to do is to di diversify. And I've not done that as much as I probably should, but he he had this issue with uh, Dorchester Press, Leisure Horror, uh, when, when it just went down like the Hindenburg 
And he had like a lot of his stuff through them. And I think that experience taught him to diversify as much as possible. And that way, if there is an issue with the publisher, then you've got all these other healthier channels, right? These other viable channels for your work. And so, and I think Joe Lansdale, another one of my mentors has really encouraged that. And he, he's always, even though he's a mass market, widely known, respected writer, Joe Lansdale has always kept a foot in small press. He's always done books with specialty presses and smaller presses. And I feel like that sort of diversification is, if it's wise for him, then it's, if it's good enough for Joe, it's good enough for me because he's a much smarter guy than I am. So both Brian and Joe have really preached that. And so I've at least to a degree tried to do that, even though I should probably do it more. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right. Okay. We're wrapping things up in, in, uh, in just a little bit, but I want to ask a, uh, ask a few more questions. Something you may, uh, you mentioned prior to us being being in this interview is that Jonathan Jance isn't your real name. How can we trust you? <laughs> you can't. We are liars. What's that book? Telling lies for fun and profit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Writers are untrustworthy. One thing about this is actually sort of true. I mean, I think that there are some of the most empathetic people, but also when writers create lists of writing rules, if you it doesn't take long at all for you to go and find places where they've broken their own list, their own rules. All right. So you really got to take what writers say with this block of salt. So um, having said that, and cast myself as completely untrustworthy, um, my pen name comes from uh, my grandparents, my my mom's my mother and father. They helped raise me. Uh, their names were Jack and Martha Jans. Um, and so I wanted to honor them. And that's where the Jans came from. So my real name is Schaefer, um, but uh, Jans is their name. So I use that. And then Jonathan is actually my first name. It's Jonathan Craig Schaefer. And um, I'm, I'm known outside of like the literary world and the entertainment world is Craig Schaefer. That's how I am as a teacher. I'm Mr. Schaefer. That's how I am. Everybody who knows me, like around where I live, calls me that. Um, but online, at conventions, everywhere else, I am Jonathan Jans. And what's kind of fun is that my friends like call me Jonathan. And because it's also my name, maybe, right? And because Jans is really close to me, that I think makes it really organic and easy for me to just, so I respond to that as quickly and easily as I do my regular name. Yeah. Ah. See, now I feel bad about like making a joke of it. <laughs> No, you're great, <laughs> my friend. You are fantastic. I feel like I was, it's like, oh, what's that to your grandparents? Oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> Were they at all inspirational when it came to your love of reading and writing? Yeah, I think the two, well, so grandpa, I had a grandpa, grandma, and an aunt, and my mom. Those four were the constants in my life. All four of them were amazing. My grandpa was always reading the newspaper, so I always saw him reading, even though it wasn't the stuff I read or write. My grandmother always took me to the public library and would let me read what I wanted to. I always chose this uh, this display of Charlie Brown comic book collections. I used to wear those puppies out, man. I'd check out like three or four at a time, take them home, read them cover to cover when I was a really little kid. So that was big. And then my mom was an elementary school teacher and she would always bring, this shows how old I am. She would bring home books on album, right? Not books on tape, not books on CD or whatever, but books on album. And so she would bring like, I remember Frog and Toad, 
the Frog and Toad books, uh, she would bring home, this is the wild part, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I was like five years old and she was playing Edgar Allan Poe on our record player on the turntable. And I think that's probably where all this started because I was listening to The Telltale Heart, The Black Cat, Pit and the Pendulum. Um, also, there were a couple other stories. There's one by Charles Dickens called The, the Signalman. And that one had like, a, I remember it had a soundtrack to it, scared the daylights out of me. And, but, but I think I just loved the way those stories made me feel, even though I hated it, um, that that kind of informed where I ended up going with my writing. Also, she loved the Twilight Zone, the TV show. So that was super helpful, I think. I mean, scary at the time, but helpful now. Oh my God. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I can imagine like young you listening to the Edgar Allan Poe. Oh my God. Yeah, I was so into it. It was so, yeah, because I love it. I love people like you work in audio and you're, you're into it and you've got a great voice. And when, um, so your voice is like made for audio and I'd say your personality is too, because you're very easy to talk to and re- really awesome at what you do. But I think about audiobook readers when they're, you know, when they're really, really great readers um, or narrators, whatever terminology you want to use. Do you, have you ever narrated an audiobook? Three. I was going to say, I th- A, you sound like you have, but B, I thought I saw that somewhere, somewhere in your bio or something, and it's all clicking. I told you I was slow on the uptake. There we go. It's just now at the end of the interview or near the end of the interview, I'm realizing that that's actually true of you. But I think with audiobook narrators, because first of all, and I need to tell you this, but maybe somebody in the audience needs to hear this. Audiobook reading is reading. All right. I get really angry when people start to discount that as a type of reading sure it's a different slightly different process or whatever but it's still reading it's so good for you and i, I love when audiobook readers are just there they're in it you know the, the, my favorite performance um is stephen weber uh who did it stephen king's book it and that performance i'll put that toe-to-toe with any oscar winning performance by any actress or actor ever like his performance in that audiobook is one of the best performances, period, I have ever heard in my life. And, I, and it's just so passionate and so invested and so nuanced and rich and amazing and scary and funny and heartfelt. And I look back at those audiobooks, and that's how those narrators were. Hell, it might have been Christopher Lee, for all I know, because I think he did some of that. I know he did some of that. I know he did some Tolkien reading. Maybe he was the one I was, I don't even know. But those narrators, they weren't like, you know, buttoned down and proper and, you know, monotone. They were there. They were into it. So I was into it. So I think a, a great audiobook narrator can do so much, not only for readers, but for young readers. I think they can be so good to really, really get people to fall in love with storytelling. Mm, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, uh, Ray Porter, he is an actor and audiobook narrator who does, among many other things, of course, the uh, the Joe Ledger series, um, which is one of my favorite, okay. favorite book series. And he brings it to life in such – like I've read all the books, but I'll still buy the audiobooks because I want to hear what he can do with them because he makes them into these adventures and he does – so many different different voices, men and women, kids, different ethnicities, and you can tell there's a lot of respect for that because you can tell he takes his time, he learns it, he learns the culture and the language because he just nails it every time. So that's one of the, he's one of my favorites. 
it's a, it's such an art and and i just that's that's why any like any whiff of disrespect in that direction just infuriates me because and, and when people sometimes they'll ask me are you ever going to narrate your own work and it's not that i don't have the desire it's that i know how much that entails how much work that is how much expertise is involved and I'll, i probably shouldn't share this because it was in a private message but i think it goes toward what we're saying and i don't think you would mind my saying it probably but you know St- Stephen, I, I think i think his last name is weber he's the guy from wings the tv show wings and he played jack torrance in the shining right the tv miniseries version i think that's his name and how you pronounce it but i um instagram messaged him uh, to tell him just how enraptured I was by his performance. And he said, he was very kind and very gracious. He said, he thinks that might be the work he's most proud of, of all the work he's done. And you think about a guy like that, who's had a really illustrious career that maybe what he's most proud of is his performance on an audiobook. that shows you just how much of his soul is in that recording. Right. Um, so I just I, I love that so much. And I love I, I got to listen. To, I've not read the Joe Ledger uh, book, so I need to get what was the name of the um, narrator again? Uh, Jonathan Mayberry. And he's one of my favorite writers. Oh, gosh, Jonathan Mayberry. OK, so who's the re- I know Jonathan Mayberry's work. I've never read the Joe Ledger books. I've read like Ghost Road Blues and all that stuff. Rotten Ruin. Love, love that. Jonathan Mayberry. Love that. Who's, who's the reader who does it? Who's the narrator? Uh, Ray Porter. He, he's the, uh, he's the uh, narrator. Yep. Got it. Okay, there we go. I knew there was some reason why Joe Ledger sounded familiar. It's just because it's made. Yeah, he's a great writer. I've never read that series, but he's such a fantastic writer. He is so cool. So damn cool, man. I, I love his stuff. Like a buddy of mine got me into his books. I'm so glad he did because I just was hooked. And yeah, but uh, uh, Ghost Road Blues, that's absolutely an amazing series. I did the, I, I listened to the, to, to the audiobook version of that one, and that was just so good. And he's got a new one out. I think it's a fancy series. I can't wait to check that out too. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's so versatile. He's like a little bit like Lansdale, like so versatile. Yeah. Like whatever he does, he just kills. Yeah, definitely, man. All right. Well, folks, we're coming down down to the end of this, unfortunately. It's got to come to an end eventually. We got to do this. But we will end with the most important question. What's next for you? Yeah, I, of course, as you've alluded to, uh, have The Dismembered coming out very soon, like in the next week. Super excited about that. Really excited for people to read that. I've got um, in 2023, hopefully I'll have the sequel to Children of the Dark coming out. Uh, It's written and ready to go. Um, I am currently editing a a sci-fi horror novel called Veil, uh, which is something I'm super proud of. And then uh, it's kind of like a little bit like Aliens meets Bird Box, just for if anybody's looking for a quick like, you know, uh, elevator pitch. There you go. And then I'm editing that. That novel's written. I'll be editing it until like the end of December. And then I'm going to start a new novel, my first winter story. I love because I mentioned The Terror by Dan Simmons. Great book. I hope I didn't come off like a jerk there because he's a great writer. Great book, all that stuff. Um, But uh, I want to write my own winter story. And, um, and there are a lot of good ones, like Snow by Ron Malfi is fantastic, and there are others. But the one that I'm going to write called The Stars Have Left the Skies. So that, 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 that'll be kind of, I'll be writing that this winter. All right, there we go. All right, all right. Um, you know what? A question that I was curious to, when it comes to your books, because I know you have some audiobooks out for some of your stuff, who is the person you would love to narrate the, these things? If you could pick anyone, who would it be? Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I think that 
the the guy I have that does a lot of my stuff. I mean, I've I've been very happy with all the audiobook versions I've heard. Um, a guy who's done several of my things is uh, Matt Godfrey. He's doing the Dismembered, which I'm so excited about. He also did Children of the Dark and Exorcist Falls. He's just unbelievably talented. Love that guy. So I'm always honored for Matt to do my stuff. Um, you know, this one's impossible, but Frank Muller, he, he's dead, unfortunately. But Frank Muller used to do uh, Stephen King's stuff. He did the Dark Tower series and others. That guy, if I had to choose a favorite audiobook narrator, it'd be Frank Muller, uh, just because that he was his voice was unlike any other. He really, I mean, I loved the Dark Tower when I read it, but he showed me a different way to read it and resurrected my love of it and made it even more than it was before, enhanced it. So I wish I could bring him back to do it. Um, but yeah, I guess with living narrators, I'll stick with either Matt or um, Stephen right? Since we talked about how amazingly he did it. So I guess I'd choose him. There you go. There you go. All right. Okay. Well, Jonathan, man, the time has come to bring this thing to a close. Don't want to do it, but it's got to end sometime. And for the folks at home, you know what to do. The Dismembered comes out November 11th through our good friends at Cemetery Dance Publications. In the meantime, you go to JonathanJansJanz.com. So many books, guys. So many books. He's written so many damn books. Buy them all. Of course, follow his socials, leave reviews. I keep saying it, and I'll keep saying it. This is how we bring everyone up by interacting and engaging. And Jonathan, definitely looking forward to the next conversation for the next book. Thank you so much, Max. You've been so much fun and so awesome just to hang out with. Uh, you put me at ease, which is quite an accomplishment. And uh, I do. I, I will absolutely, if you'll have me, I will be back because I've had so much fun tonight with you. Every time, man. Every time. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on. All right, everyone, that brings this episode to a close. And don't forget to get your copy of The Dismembered, now available through Cemetery Dance Publications. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemaxyahoo.com and check the show out wherever you find your favorite podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.